0: If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at infodenverchurch.org. At to get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching.
1: This is like the second Sunday in a row that I've matched someone in the worship team. I mean, for two Sundays in, that's pretty good. Hi. Hi. That was so good, everyone responded on like the first thing I said. That's gonna be a good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Amanda Lum, and I'm the teaching and adult ministries pastor on staff here at DCC. So good to be here with all of you this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 8. If you do not have a Bible, there is a Bible beneath the seat in front of you. If you were with us last week, you know that we jumped back into our study of the Gospel of Luke after taking a short break during the Advent season. And now we're back in Luke in chapter eight this morning. And all right, get ready, y'all, because we have a lot to cover in 15 verses that we're going to look at this morning. And I'm going to tell you that you should buckle up now because I'm going to preach three sermons this morning. Yep. Feel free to leave now. (laughs) If you need to, no, but really, we're going to go through three sermons, and each of them deserves their own Sunday, but they also tie together really well, too. So we're going to start by talking about the role of women in Jesus's ministry, then we're going to talk about the parables, and then we're going to talk about a farmer and some soil. So we ready? Because we're going. That's what we're doing. All right. We're going to start by reading at the top of chapter eight. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. All right, pause here. Keep your place, because we're going to come back and we'll finish reading later. But we're gonna stop for a moment and look at these three quick verses that are at the start of chapter eight. And I want us to stop because we cannot miss the significance of what Luke just shared. Last week, Michael gave a quick explanation to why we choose to go through entire books in the Bible like we're doing with Luke. And we do this because when we choose to only preach on like sermon series or specific topics, it's easy for us to skip over or miss verses like these, that might invite us or challenge us to consider something that maybe we don't talk about often or maybe we would want to avoid and if we weren't going through luke in the way that we are line by line like this we might choose to skip over these verses and that's because these three verses with these quick details in them they sit between two really powerful and beautiful stories in the gospels and so it might just be easy to go like okay this is just another detail on to the next beautiful story but we would be missing something drastically important because this quick detail about the women following Jesus, well, this, this detail, it actually speaks to a bigger theme that we see in Luke, like a hallmark of his gospel. And that's that Luke continually centers and celebrates the voices of women, the poor, and the marginalized. These verses are doing just that. They are centering and emphasizing the role that women played in Jesus' ministry, and this is no small thing. We cannot skip over this. The group of women who's with Jesus, they're with the 12 disciples too as they travel from town to town. And we're told that they've had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, that they have been changed. They can't go back to what they were doing. So instead, they follow this man alongside the 12 who changed their lives. See, in a world or in a time where women's voices were continually discounted, silenced, and cast aside, Luke elevates them these details about the women could have easily been left out of his gospel. But he doesn't do that. He breaks away from the typical social norms and boundaries, much like Jesus did, and he chooses to celebrate the women who are following Jesus. Now, not only does Luke tell us that the women are with the 12 disciples following Jesus, he calls them by name. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, so many others, Luke calls them my name because these women matter too. They have names, they have a place with Jesus, they come from all different backgrounds and they have different experiences, transformative encounters with Jesus and every single one of them matters. They matter. Over and over and over Luke elevates the voices, actions, and influences of women in Jesus's ministry. Later in his gospel he's actually specific to mention that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus while he is teaching. This is no small thing because to say that someone was sitting at a teacher's feet is to call them a disciple. Luke calls Mary a disciple, and this is his way of saying that Mary is is legitimate in a world that would refuse to see her in that way. It's almost as if Luke is shouting from the rooftops, Mary is a disciple in a world that would never embrace her as such. In these three short verses, Luke brings women, these women who are following Jesus to the front of the reader's mind. And the role of women in Jesus' ministry was crucial. Luke tells us that they're foot in the bill. They are paying and supporting Jesus' ministry by their own means. Luke does not just acknowledge these women, he celebrates them. And we must pause. We must, and we must see the significance of what Luke is doing, and we must follow his example. Because I have to say that as a woman who sits at the feet of Jesus, who calls herself a disciple, who has experienced life-changing encounters with Christ, To see Luke over and over and over again elevate women, it is deeply touching. My friends, may we follow his example and honor our sisters in a similar way. Our first step in doing this, and in my opinion, the absolute very least that we can do is by not skipping over verses like this, but allowing them the same significance that we will, the parable we are about to unpack. This can be our first step, because they matter. And if you are sitting here this, this morning and you need to hear that, you matter. So as we continue reading, may we remember that these women, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and so many others are sitting at Jesus' feet when he tells this story too. That's sermon number one. All right, let's keep reading. Verse four, while a large crowd was gathering around, uh, gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed as he scattered the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it, came, when, when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it, and choked out the plants. Still, other seeds fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this, what this parable meant and he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe or be saved. Those in the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy and when they hear it, when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Okay, so a a large crowd has gathered around Jesus, and this is pretty typical at this point as news is spread about who Jesus is and, and what he's doing for people. And as the crowd settles in to listen, Jesus tells them a parable. Now this was a common practice for Jesus in his teaching. Regularly throughout the gospel, we see Jesus teaching people about who he is, about who God is, and about the kingdom of God by using parables. And the parable of the sower is actually the first parable that we see in Luke's gospel. And so, before we unpack this parable, I want us first to take a moment um, just to consider parables in general. Now, if you've been in or around the church for a while, the parables are likely familiar to you. And that's because we love the parables, we love to study the parables, and we love to preach on the parables. See, I've heard countless sermons on this parable alone. Anyone with me? All right. And this makes sense. I mean, it's Jesus' teachings, right? We're meant to consider them. We're meant to to look at them and ask what they mean for our lives. We, We are meant to allow these parables, these stories to work in us and through us and to invite us into something. That's the point, right? But sometimes I think because we are so familiar with the parables, that actually stands in our way of of being opened up to them, right? We're so familiar with them that somehow we've convinced ourselves that we know what they mean, right, we've figured them out. Someone mentions the parable, popular, maybe the, the prodigal son or the parable of the sower, and we're like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that one. It means this, right? See, we've heard so many reflections on these stories, many attempting to explain them, to help us understand them. But I wonder, what if the parables are not meant to be explained? Maybe Jesus frequently used this method of teaching to invite us into something else. See, Robert Capon talks about this in his book, Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment, and he says that when we try to explain the parables, we actually almost entirely missed the point of the parables. Capon actually says uh, says this about Jesus' parables. He says, some of his parables are not stories. Many are not agreeable. Most are complex. And a good percentage of them produce more confusion than understanding. See, if you've spent any time looking at the parables, that last statement by Capon is actually really freeing because it's so True, because the parables are actually very confusing. See, and we're even told that, that the disciples are scratching their heads when Jesus finishes telling this story in verse nine. They're confused. They want Jesus to tell them the meaning. Can you explain to us? I mean, they're looking at him being like, what now, what Is that the end of the story? That's all of it, right? And I think if we were there with them, if we weren't as familiar with the story or hadn't heard as many teachings on the story, we would probably be saying the same thing, looking at Jesus being like, what are you trying to say to us, Jesus? I approach the parable in that way. What is this parable trying to say to me? What does it want me to do, right? What do do I need to be explained But when we look for explanations, we might be missing the point. So if we're not meant to explain them, then what do we do with them? That's a really good question, and I'm so glad you asked. Maybe Jesus chose the parables as a teaching method to cast vision for a king and a kingdom that is beyond our expectations and beyond explanation. Maybe it's possible that Jesus spoke in parables to help us break free from our expectations of who he should be and what we think his kingdom should look like. But to do this, we would need to engage our curiosity. We would need to engage our imaginations. And we need to do this because the kingdom of God is like nothing we have ever seen or known or experienced before. So we would need to imagine something. See, when you think about it like this, Jesus inviting us to imagine the kingdom, it's actually quite beautiful, this way of teaching, isn't it? Beautiful and wildly frustrating. Frustrating because don't we just want clear, right, and wrong answers sometimes? Sometimes. I mean, wouldn't it just be easier if there were like clear answers, clear examples, dare I say clear rules that we were meant to follow? Wouldn't that just be easier? Am I alone in that? No, I think we want the easy answer, right? We're going to look at the parable and say, well, this is what it means because then I can do this with my life, right? And, but here's the thing. Easy answers are tempting, and maybe this is why we have tried to explain the parables and understand them for so long, because we want that easy answer. We want the parable to tell us what to do with our lives so we can be, like, right. But here's what I've learned about easy answers. Often, they do not lead us to transformation. Often, they do not lead us into a new way of seeing, a new way of living, a new way of being in the world. See, Jesus invites us to imagine, to get curious about who he is and what the kingdom of God is all about. And what's interesting about this particular parable, even though he's inviting us to imagine something, he also offers An explanation, he answers the disciples when they say, can you tell us what this means? He gives them a meaning. Now he doesn't really do this ever, but he does say here, he responds to their questions about a meaning by saying, the kingdom of the, I'm sorry, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables. So the meaning that Jesus offers here to the disciples when they ask is interesting because the word that we see here for secrets, the knowledge of the secrets, is actually the word mystery. So he says to them, the knowledge of the mystery of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Now, let's talk about mystery for just a minute, okay? When I say the word mystery, maybe some of us would, would think about our favorite books or our favorite movie that kind of had us on the edge of our seats the entire time until the very end when there's this like big twist that reveals the mystery or the thing that's been going on the entire time and we're like, oh my gosh. That's what I think about. Or maybe we think about mystery like it's some puzzle and there's all these pieces that are scattered everywhere and we need to put them all together so that we can get the big picture, so we can solve it and see what it is, right? We see mystery as something that needs to be solved. But here's the thing. The mystery of the kingdom of God is not simply meant to be solved or explained. The mystery of the divine is something to be discovered, to be enjoyed. Jesus invites the disciple to explore the mystery of God, to enter in and to explore a God and a kingdom that is endlessly explorable, endlessly knowable. See, Jesus invites the disciples into the mystery of to the kingdom. He says the knowledge of the mystery has been given to you, but this doesn't mean that he's given them all the answers, that he's given us all of the answers. No, instead, I think we're invited to enjoy these stories when he tells them. We're invited to discover them, to know more about who God is and what the kingdom of God is like. Here's another way to think about it, because mystery, I I kind of had a hard time. I was like, what does this even mean? How do I imagine this? I just want the answer, right? But here's another way to think about it. Consider relationships. When we first meet someone, something about them like interests us, right? We're like, oh, I wanna know you a little bit more. I gotta get to know you, right? So it catches our attention. Maybe we're curious about them or excited to get to know them a little bit more. They are a mystery. So we get to know them, we pursue them, we spend time with them, we ask good questions and we get to know them more. And in the process of getting to know them more, we find joy in experiencing a little bit more about who they are. So then we ask more questions and we spend more time, right? And I think we are always in the process of getting to know people more. Today's actually uh, my wedding anniversary. My husband and I are celebrating 12 years married today. Oh, you guys are kind of, that's sweet. I woke up this morning, I was like, we did it. We're here. Um, and I say this because I feel like every year, Matt and I'd say and talk about the, the new things that we discovered about each other. And what I love is just recognizing that I feel like we're finally getting to know each other. We've been together for 14 years. Just this week, I was talking with a friend and he was talking about how at the start of his marriage, he used to get frustrated when he didn't understand his wife, when he couldn't like figure her out in a moment. But now that they've been together so long, that he sees these moments when he can't figure his wife out, when he doesn't know or understand why she's doing something, that he actually gets joyful and excited because he recognizes in those moments that there's more to discover about her, there's more to learn about her, there's more to enjoy about her. What if this is what Jesus meant when he shared these confusing stories with us? What if this is what Jesus was inviting us to, to enter into the mystery? What if we're being invited to explore and discover our endlessly knowable God and the, the vast greatness of the kingdom we're being invited into. See, when we see the parables, if we approach the parables as a puzzle to be solved, well, we might just miss the point entirely. We might miss the invitation to explore the mystery of God and to enjoy our maker. So let's remember that invitation And let's use our imaginations this morning as we consider the parable of the sower. That's sermon two. You guys are doing great, all right? Now let's talk about the parable of the sower. This is the story about a farmer sowing seeds. The farmer goes out to sow his seed and he throws the seed on four different types of soil. Some of the seed falls on the path and it gets trampled on and it becomes a a meal for the birds. Some of the seeds fall on rocky ground and the seed settles into the dirt and a plant grows, but because the ground is so rocky, it can't get enough moisture and so the plant doesn't last very long. Some seed falls on the ground with thorns and weeds, which eventually takes what the plant needs and chokes it out. And some of the seed falls on good soil and the plant thrives and the harvest is abundant. This is the parable. That's the whole story, that's it. Now there are a few different characters for us to consider in this story. We have the sower, we have the seed, and then we have the different types of soil. The farmer or the sower is believed to be God or Jesus in this story, and Jesus tells us that the seed is the word of God. He also tells us that the soil represents the human heart. Now we hear about the soil a lot more than we hear about any other character in this story. The soil for sure takes center stage. And oftentimes, this for me has been explained like, yeah, 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 this has to be, the soil's gotta be the central character because this is us in the story. So this is telling us what to do, right? But remember, we're not here to explain anything, okay? So the soil or the condition of our hearts appears to be the focus. The point of the story. So much so that oftentimes this parable is referred to as the parable of the soils, not the parable of the sower. So, with this explanation, we often think or talk about the soil more than anything else in the story. Because again, this is our part in the story. The soil is our hearts, it's our lives, right? And we can do something with our lives. This is the part of the story where we say, I can do that. And we get this idea that we're in control. I like that idea. Don't think I'm alone, right? See, we wanna know what we can do. And for so long, I have read this parable thinking, what must I do to ensure that my life is the good soil? Because God forbid I should be the other three types of soil. Did you see what happened to those plants? I don't want that for my life. I don't think anyone else does either. See, for so long I've read this parable with this motivation to do whatever I needed to do to make sure that I was good soil. And my guess is that I'm not alone in reading this parable this way. I think many of us probably see the different types of soil, the first three types of soil in a similar way. And I'm willing to bet just about anything, that many of us have heard uh, sermons with a similar tone. Messages and reflections that are urging us to be the good soil, and that are cautioning us against being the trampled path, the rocky ground, or to have lives that are riddled with weeds, right? And when we do this, we look at the first three types of soil, and we say, I don't want to be that. And that's understandable. Of course, we want to be the soil that is fertile, the soil that produces a hundred times more than sown. Who doesn't want that? And let me be clear, there is nothing wrong about desiring to cultivate healthy soil in our lives. That's a good thing. But what I want us to get curious about this morning is why that tends to be the first place we go when we read this parable. Why that tends to be the explanation that we want to cling on to, right? I need to be good soil. I can't be any of this other soil. Why do we go there? And I want us to consider this morning how that how we go about cultivating good soil in our life truly matters and if our starting point in cultivating good soil in our life is by looking at the other three types of soil and saying i can't be that well that means our starting point is as the judge we are the judge we get to say that the other three soils are bad and this one's good and if we're honest Easy answers are pretty quick to come by when we're the judge, aren't they? See, we become the judge not only of our soils, of our lives, but we then become the judge of other people's hearts, of other people's soil. But, friends, that is not our job, that is not our responsibility. You know, I can't help but think of the women that Luke just mentioned when I think about this judgment. Can't help but think of Mary and Joanna and Susanna and all the other women. Because in Jesus' day, many would have looked at these women and said they could not possibly be good soil. They were judged and discounted. But you know who didn't judge them or discount them? Jesus and Jesus doesn't seem to judge the soil in this parable in this way either it's easy for us to read Jesus's explanations of the parable and think that the results that the first three types of soil had are in some way a punishment for not being the right kind of soil but these are not a punishment they are simply a reality The trampled path was too compact to allow the seed to be planted so the birds get a good meal out of it. The plants in the rocky soil struggle to establish roots, and so the plant doesn't last long. The seed that's planted in the thorns is overcome by the weeds surrounding it, and the good soil is a welcoming home for the seed, and it takes root. We see the results yielded by the first three types of soil and we see that in some way they're being punished because it's not the right soil. But Jesus is simply stating what each soil is capable of producing at the time. What each soil will allow in that moment. It's not a punishment, it just is. Jesus doesn't appear to judge uh, the soil, and here's what's fascinating, neither does the sower. Did you notice in the story that the sower doesn't seem to care what type of soil the seed is falling on? The sower is tossing seed everywhere. The sower isn't holding back, but is generously tossing seed just like, you get some, and you here, and over there, right? The sower just seems like a happy-go-lucky guy just tossing seed everywhere. Now, for so long, I have made this parable about the soil when it had something vitally important to tell me about the sower. See, in my search for easy, applicable answers in my judgment, I missed this. But when I allowed the parable to invite me into the mystery of God, I saw something different in this familiar story. I saw the sower. Barbara Brown Taylor actually reflects beautifully on this when she says this. The parable has been known for centuries as the parable of the sower, which means there's a chance, just a chance, that we have got it all backwards. We hear the story and think it is a story about us, but what if we are wrong? What if it's not about us at all, but about the sower? What if it's not about our own successes and failures and birds and rocks and thorns, but about the extravagance of a sower who does not seem to be phased by such concerns? who flings seed everywhere, wastes it with holy abandon, who feeds the birds, whistles at the rocks, picks his way through the thorns, shouts hallelujah at the good soil, and just keeps on sowing, confident that there is enough seed to go around, that there is plenty, and that when the harvest comes at last, it will fill every barn in the neighborhood to the rafters. If this is really the parable of the sower and not the parable of the different kinds of ground, then it begins to sound quite new. The focus is not on us and our shortfalls, but on the generosity of our maker, the prolific sower who does not obsess about the condition of the fields, who is not stingy with the seed, but who casts it everywhere on good soil and bad, who is not cautious or judgmental or even very practical but who seems willing to keep reaching into his seed bag for all eternity, covering the whole of creation with the fertile seed of his truth. Amen, Barbara Brown Taylor. (laughs) (sighs) Is that not freeing? See, in our pursuit for explanations, clear rights and wrongs, it's easy to make this wild story about what we should be doing to be good soil. And when we do this, we miss the invitation to see our good God, whose lavish love and abundance goodness is poured out on all of us, no matter the condition of our hearts. Obviously, I care about that a little bit. See, God pours out Her endless love and grace on all of us, no matter who we are or what we have done or what we have left undone. The parable tells us that our God is one who does not spend her time judging the condition of our hearts, but looks at our soil and says, I can do something with that. That's good news. And as I thought about how easy it is for us to judge the soil in our lives and others, I thought, you know what's interesting? We don't seem to be judging the sower. Because the sower appears to be wasting precious seed on soil that isn't ideal. See, remember Jesus is speaking to like an agrarian culture, so they would have been really familiar with farming practices and they would have heard this story and my guess is they would have been like, the sower's doing what now? You didn't want with the seed? What a fool has to know that nothing's gonna happen to that seed on a trampled path. Why would he put that in rocky ground? What a waste. At first glance, it appears that the sower is perfectly content to waste seed on bad soil. But again, to call it a waste would be to make us the judge who are we to say the seed has been wasted? This is the short view. This is a quick reaction to the story, but let's imagine for a moment something greater from the sower. See, over the past few weeks, I actually put a lot of time into being like, I'm gonna talk about how to cultivate healthy soil. That went a different direction. But I took a deep dive into like sustainable farming practices and how to cultivate good soil. And what I was struck by is how long the process takes. It is years and years and years of intentionality. In our short-sighted perspectives and in our need for explanations, we think, well, you know what? I need good soil like yesterday if I want my life to produce fruit. But what if God has a different perspective? What if the sower has the long view? What if God isn't wasting seed on bad soil? And what if the seed that was tossed on the road was just the first step in seeing the soil be prepared for something new or different? What if God means to nourish the birds? who will eat the seed live their lives and then return to the ground and contribute to the soil's health or what if the seed that falls on the rocky ground was meant to not only produce or it was o- it was meant to only produce for that season it wasn't meant to be there forever but for just that time and when it withered it became nutrients in the soil that would then later allow for new growth new life What if the seed that falls among the weeds, it actually gets planted and it grows and it becomes the symbol of hope? Something new can grow here. What if none of it was wasted, but it was a part of God cultivating something new in our lives over time? Because it takes time I had a friend who used to say to me, God wastes nothing. God wastes nothing. And I have to be honest with you, probably 90% of the time that she said it, I wanted to punch her in the throat. (laughs) Because usually she was saying it in a season where everything felt like a waste. Where I was crying out in agony saying, why are you wasting this? So I get... I don't say the words lightly this morning. God wastes nothing because I know that they can sting. But they also hold in them so much comfort. They also hold in them so much hope. God wastes nothing. This does not discount our pain, our hurt, our sadness, but it reassures us in the midst of it. It reassures us that this is not the end of the story because you guys, with Jesus, death and sorrow do not get the last word. They do not get to win. These words can be a reminder to us that this is not the end of the story, that God is still cultivating something in us. See, this wild story about a farmer, seed and some soil, Oh, it has so much to offer us. And we've only just dipped our toe in this deep, deep water of what it has to offer our souls, what we're invited to explore and imagine about who God is and what the kingdom of God is like. And so, my friends, my prayer for us this morning is this, that this parable would help us to see that we can be free from being the judge, of our soil or anyone else's. That we can receive the lavish love of the sower who isn't judging the condition of our soil but looks at us and says, I can do something with that. And I pray this morning that we can rest in the truth that God wastes nothing because the heart of our maker is on the road and on the rocks and in the weeds. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for these stories, these stories that don't give us clear rules or expectations or right and wrong answers, but that invite us to something far greater than that, stories that invite us to explore who you are, who tell us that you deeply want to know who we are and that you want us to know who you are. God, I'm thankful that you are a God who sees all of us, and no matter the condition of our hearts, no matter where we are, who we are, what we've done, what we've not done, that you pour out your love on us and that none of that love is wasted. And everyone said amen.